And now it's time for Bum Reviews with Chester A. Bum. Tonight's review, Gravity. Greatest movie I've ever seen in my life! Houston, we have spoilers! There's this woman in space, and she is joined by George Clooney and Red Shirt. And they're out there fixing pointless space thing? But then Houston is like, astronauts, we have a ton of debris hitting your way. Oh my god, is that gonna be a problem? <laughs> With all our high-tech machinery down here, don't you think we'd be able to tell if it was gonna be a problem? Oh my god, that's a problem! Oh, butter. So the astronauts are trying to dodge all this space debris? And astronaut Bullock is like, it's okay, we still have time! As long as our Red Shirt guy is still alive, it won't come after us! Don't you worry, I'm George Clooney with a rocket pack and I will fix everything. You seem unrealistically calm and cool through all this! If you were George Clooney with a rocket pack, you would be too. But it turns out astronaut Bullock is kinda right and they are really screwed! I'm running out of oxygen! Don't worry, there's like a bajillion space stations conveniently near us. But what if those convenient space stations have a ton of unconvenient things about them? It'd be alright cause I'm still George Clooney with a rocket pack. So they bump into one of the space stations? And I don't mean come across it, I mean bump, I mean they should call this bumping the movie. But then astronaut Clooney is about to be bumped into space, but Bullock saves him! I gotcha, I'm not gonna let go! You have to, because that lasagna holding you to the spaceship won't last. Will I ever see you again? If convenience and Bullock riding would let me, who's directing this picture anyway? The guy who did one of the Harry Potters? I'll definitely be back! Yeah! I'm George Clooney with a rocket pad! The astronaut Bullock is like, I have to get inside this thing and figure out how to get home! But first I must take part in a rebirth metaphor! she's on is on fire? I was on fire once! Never juggle torches with Courtney Love. But she figures out it's okay because there's another space station over there! Hurry! Without gas. Space sucks. But she climbs inside the space station and is like, I hear the radio signals of an Asian man talking to his dogs and baby! Help! And back on Earth the guy is like, Why did my baby's first words sound like a screaming astronaut in space? So astronaut Bullock decides maybe today is a good day to die. There's no point in calling for help anymore. I'll just let death take me. Well, one more time. Somebody please! Uh, Mama, I think Baby either needs doctor or therapist. But then, the ghostly apparition of George Clooney appears. No, really, that happens. And Ghost Clooney is like, Ooh, I'm Ghost Clooney. Have you come to give me hope in my desperate time of need? Here's the vodka. Oh, what? Oh, yeah, uh, go on living. Uh, you're a good kid. I will, Ghost George Clooney. Mm-hmm. But wait, how can we submit that you're a spiritual apparition and not just a figment of my imagination? Not keeping it open to interpretation, but instead clarifying that another world exists. This button gets you home. There's no way I could have known that. Ghosts are real. So astronaut Bullock pushes the button to get her back home, but the ship starts burning apart, falls in the water, and is on fire again! Oh my god! Why does the universe hate Sandra Bullock? Okay, the Miss Congeniality movies were pretty bad, but she made up with it with the heat! Oh, and speaking of heat... Get out of that fire, Sandra Bullock! Oh, hot potato, hot potato! So she swims out of the ship, reaches the surface, and crawls onto land! Oh look, an Asian man with a baby and two dogs! Ah! What'd I say? The end! So gravity was really intense in a really great movie? And it's definitely teach me a very valuable lesson. Never go into space! It is the scariest place in the world! There's nothing but stations that don't work and poorly rehashed Star Trek sequels! I be Saber sleeping in a snake pit! Which, by the way, lets you take free souvenirs. Isn't that right, Charlie? This is just doing bums. Ow! Ow, Charlie! Let go! Let go! Ow, Charlie! Charlie! Don't make me take your other eye! God! Why does nobody want to help when I say I have a one-eyed snake trying to kill me?
If I had wings like Noah's dove, I'd fly the river to the one I love. Oh, fare thee well, my honey, fare thee well. well I had a man strong and tall. Moved his body like a cannonball. Oh, fare thee well, my honey, fare thee well. Hey everyone, this is Ramblings of a Guy from Ajada. I am your host, Luke Cannon, and welcome to our third year of podcasting and our fourth annual TIFF episode. Joining us once again, we have our TIFF commentator and frequent guest, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Christopher Mish. Hey, good morning, Luke. Morning. So, in comparison to TIFFs of the previous year, how is this year's TIFF? This year's TIFF was pretty good, mainly because Stephen Queen was back. Some of the big blockbusters we got a sneak peek at again, and uh, luckily this year I was able to get into a lot of them, not necessarily the premieres, but the second showings and the third showing. so I do have some reports to come back from TIFF, and it was a great year. Every year it really seems like it's getting bigger and bigger, the lineups are longer and longer, but it's always worth the wait. All right, so right off the bat, why don't we cover what are probably the three biggest releases of the festival. And by biggest, I mean the three that are actually out in theaters right now that you can see for yourselves, starting off with the film of the moment and what is definitely going to be a fixture on every single critic's 10 best list, Gravity. I'm going to assume that if you're listening to this podcast that you've already seen the film, and if not, you should definitely stop listening and go see the film now, especially in IMAX 3D, to get the full effect. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, I can definitely say that this film not only lived up to the hype, but exceeded it. Well, I'm sure there will be better films later on this year in terms of plot and character. In terms of technical filmmaking, visual storytelling, and theme, I highly doubt anything will top it this year. The effects in cinematography are, of course, jaw-dropping. The sound design, or lack thereof, is incredible, especially when it's used to help build the underlying tension of the story. And Cuaron's writing, visual language, and direction are straightforward and very powerful. One could complain about the heavy-handedness of the symbolism used here, but for me personally, it never veered into obnoxious territory, and I'm particularly sensitive to blatantly overt symbolism when it comes to movies. And while the bum review pointed out that George Clooney is basically playing himself in a rocket pack, when he does show up later in the film, he is not, repeat, not a ghost. It's clear that it's her subconscious giving her will to live, as well as her past training, a much need to kick in the ass. But for me, what, uh, what made the film truly soar was Sandra Bullock, an actress that I've always considered with complete apathy. I've never really cared about her one way or another, but with her performance, you realize that the film is more than just an FX tour de force, that the film is about overcoming grief and finding the will to live. It's the best performance of her career, and the thing that elevates it from spectacle to grand, beautiful vision that deserves every bit of praise it's received. It's a Sandra Bullock's great. And I have nothing against her. And I do think she is still the weaker link of the movie. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I love Gravity. Um, the screening was great. It was a TIFF IMAX 3D screening. It was sold out. The rush line was like six hours deep. You're right. I mean, from a visual standpoint, technical achievement, it's pretty much unmatched. Probably some of the best 3D I've ever seen on par with Avatar, probably even better. 
I thought the first half of this movie was just like so perfect, so intense. But I think it did start to lose steam near the end and then slowly pick it up again. But then kind of lose it at the end when almost too many things start to go wrong. Like when she was like drowning in the shuttle, I was kind of questioning myself. But I mean, overall, great movie. Probably my top 10 of the year so far. Clooney does seem like he just kind of dialed it in in a way, having a little fun on the jetpack. But from a visual standpoint, especially from the early, early scenes in this movie, it really got to me. And one that I do want to watch again, because from a technical standpoint, looking back on this movie, I mean, I almost just figured, you know, these guys, they filmed in space. How could they make this movie look so realistic? But when you think about it, you know, they're probably just back in a small set. Quran, a nice follow-up to Children of Men. Um, I think he said that he's never going to do a movie this big again. Because again, it took him... Ha- how many years? Five, six years to get from Children of Men to here. So great movie, though I'm not over, I guess, gushing it more than everybody else is, I guess. It's solid movie. Okay. The drowning part didn't really bother me too much because it's only one, two minutes tops near the very end. And I could understand some of the complaints that people might have about it. But yeah. for me personally, it didn't really matter because once you learn about Sandra Bullock's character and realize that this is a woman that's literally stranded in space and she doesn't seem too upset by it. And when you realize why and ultimately this is her rediscovering her will to live, that to me is what elevated the film. Some people are saying that, oh, this is going to get a backlash on the same level as Avatar. But the thing yeah. is, even before Avatar came out, people were complaining about how this is basically like a live action version of Fern Gully or... Pocahontas with Smurfs and stuff like that. People were already poking holes in it long before it actually came out. Like, it barely held up when it initially debuted. Whereas with Gravity, yes, the spectacle behind it is breathtaking, but there is an actual story and a point to it. It's actually about something, as opposed to just being spectacle for spectacle's sake. So, whatever few complaints people could have about it, the overall impact of it more than makes up for it. I saw this twice in IMAX 3D on opening weekend. I haven't done that for any other movie this year. Yeah, well. I mean, I saw Pacific Rim twice in IMAX 3D, but there was like three or four weeks in between screenings. To want to actually go back and watch it all over again the next day, that hasn't happened to me since How to Train Your Dragon, so... Doesn't it really kind of break your ideals of how cool it would be to be in space? I think growing up, we're all like, oh, oh yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I've always known in, before. I'm an astronaut, and then this happened. I'm glad I'm not in space. It really creates this terrifying environment. I've always been a little bit paranoid about going up into space, but this definitely confirms it. And yet, ironically enough, it's getting people interested back in space exploration, which is great, but it's sort of ironic that this is the vehicle that reignites people's interest in space travel. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. Also, I love the tiny little cameo for Marvin the Martian within the movie, and while the ending was perfect, it would have been just so funny if, if instead of her on the beach seeing the house off in the distance, it was the destroyed, arrested remains of the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) Really? Like, it just would have been funny if she's like, You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! Damn you all to hell! (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, anyways, so we've talked about Gravity. I'll definitely be talking about it later on with my 10 best list in the next couple months. But moving on to the movie that came out before Gravity, Rush. All I have to say about it is Ron Howard's best, most enjoyable work since Apollo 13. 
Ray's sequences were fantastic. Chris Hemsworth proves that he's leading man material and can do more than just Thor. And I really want to see Daniel Brühl get a supporting actor nomination for playing uh, Nikki Lauda. It's really his movie, and what he has to portray is a huge challenge that he manages to pull off successfully. I love how the movie kind of creates this dichotomy between you have to be on on one side or the other, but as the movie goes along, there really is a clear focus on who the the main character is. And and I agree, this is one of Ron Howard's best films. I I still forget that he did uh, The Dilemma last year and a couple other, the the Robert Langdons, but he's got a pretty good filmography behind him, ups and downs. This is definitely one of his highlights. It's a great movie. In terms of racing, I'm not a huge racing fan, but these racing scenes... They're really enthralling, and the two two lead performances, I mean, they really wanted me to kind of look back and to see how authentic this recreation was and the battle between the two. But you're right, Daniel Brawl, this is his film, and he definitely deserves some sort of nomination because he is, by the end of this movie, the character that you're rooting for, I think. Yeah, and in a lesser movie, Nicky Lauda would have been obviously been the bad guy right from the beginning. But the movie makes a really great job as just showing that both of these guys are cocky assholes. They're just cocky assholes of a different variety. And that even though Nicky Lauda comes from the rich family and that he bought his way into the race, you're sort of rooting more for him to succeed because he has more to prove than James Hunt does because being played by Thor himself, you sort of assume that this is a guy that always gets everything that he wants handed to him. So, And then the one before that was Prisoners. For me, I really dug this movie. I mean, right off the bat, it doesn't have incest that derails the whole thing like Incendies had, so automatically it's a win in my book. All the actors here are great. The pacing of the film is slow, but deliberate enough so that you're not bored. If you think that this is just a season of The Killing compacted into two and a half hours, you're right, but it handles the story without any digressions or distractions. And it doesn't hit the heights of something like Gone Baby Gone, but all in all, it's just a nice dark thriller that stays with you after you've left the theater. I thought this was a phenomenal film. Just this, the, the, the tension for two and a half hours. We're just trapped in this movie, in these characters, and putting ourselves in these situations. And it was one of my favorite movies of TIFF. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. I think the performances are, are stellar all the way around. I just love how a movie for two and a half hours can just keep us so captivated throughout. And maybe near the end, there's a couple more twists and turns than maybe we expected, or maybe even more than we needed there to be. But the performances and the atmosphere that's creating this film, Jake Gyllenhaal, Hugh Jackman, and two leads... Hugh Jackman plays this really dislikable character, but he does it so well. And Jake Gyllenhaal, in a way, is kind of like the semi-hero of this movie. But again, they all have their flaws, but brilliant stuff up until the final moments. And a lot of people say, yeah, the movie ends too quickly, but it's a perfect ending, I think. And can't say enough. For me, it's a phenomenal movie. Yeah, I really dug this. This one's probably going to end up on my 10 best list as well, but probably sort of near the bottom. Because, again, that's one of those... It's where you see the movie and you really enjoy it, and then when you go back and you see the reactions people have online on Twitter or listen to the different movie podcasts and they immediately start poking holes in there, and it's sort of, huh. I wouldn't say it taints your enjoyment of the movie, but at least sort of makes you kind of step back and realize, oh, maybe there were some contrived coincidences in there and stuff that you should have seen coming a mile away, but because you were in the moment, you didn't see that. But whatever pinpoint plot holes that you might have with Prisoners, it doesn't take away for that this is a really incredibly well-made movie. 
Oh, it is. Like, on, on all around. And I may be off point here, but I prefer this to gravity in my own little way, I guess. Because I think even the gravity kind of had those kind of plot holes too, but for me, a prisoner's just held my attention for so long, and like, I almost had a heart attack like five times, I think, like, when that one guy is, is going through the houses, and you don't really know his part and everything. It's a really hard movie to watch sometimes like the tension is just ratcheted up and it's like it doesn't let go for two and a half hours and i loved it it's one of my favorite movies of the year one of my favorite movies of tiff and yeah i hold against you but i do prefer it uh, more than gravity and i hope it does get some i was talking to jason the other day and he said that you know it most likely won't get too too much in terms of oscar contention but hopefully an acting nomination here an acting nomination there because i think it deserves it okay well, those are the big three of TIFF, of, like I said, just the stuff that you can go to your local multiplex and actually see these movies, and we highly recommend all three of them. Uh, why don't we move on to the next two? One of them, in particular, it actually won the audience award at TIFF. We talked about it a lot in the TIFF preview episode, 12 Years a Slave. It's getting a limited release on the 18th before going wide on November 1st, and like you said, this is probably going to be the front runner in this year's Oscar race. And from the sounds of it, it lives up to the hype. Oh, it does. When I was watching, I mean, I'm thinking, like, has there been a director, at least now, that has three movies so strong? I mean, Steve McQueen is really developing with each movie. And 12 Years a Slave is you know, maybe his most commercial movie. because has a big cast, but it does not disappoint. I said back in March that this movie was, if done right has the potential to win Best Picture, and after seeing it, after seeing Gravity, after seeing some of his competition, it's far and away the best film I saw at TIFF. It's going to be hard to find a better film made this year. Obviously, we still have a couple more months to go, but this is just Steve McQueen at its best, and stellar cast. It's a brutal, brutal, brutal movie. I think some people, when they saw the trailer, they were hesitant. Oh, no, Steve McQueen's kind of gone a little more more Hollywood. But this is still Steve McQueen. It's a beautiful-looking film. It has this Terrence Malick kind of sensibilities to it, this look. But at the heart, it's all Steve McQueen. And it, it's a brutal movie. And you feel beaten and raw at the end. And there's a lot of people in the audience who had their head and their knees for long periods of time during this movie because there's just so much torture and brutality towards it. But in the yeah, end... Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised you described it as mainstream because I guess the easiest comparison that you could make to it is Django Unchained. But Django Unchained, that was Quentin Tarantino. That was, yeah. it tackles the same issues, but there's the black humor and the action and the bloodlust and the giddy fun that the movie exudes right from the beginning. Whereas 12 Years a Slave, yeah, that has a long uphill battle. And they're selling the movie on its huge cast and its immense critical praise. And yeah. really, I think that's the only thing that's going to get people into this movie. Oh, yeah, I know, exactly. I mean, most people don't know who Steve McQueen is, and when you say Steve McQueen, they think of the actor. But you look at this cast, I mean, it has such a stellar cast, and from Brad Pitt, who's only on the screen for about 10 minutes, to Cumberpatch, to even Paul Dano, who plays this really villainous guy, to Michael Fassbender, who plays, like, the devil in human form, who is going to be nominated for supporting actor. Like, the Oscars, the Academy cannot ignore him anymore. He's a force to be reckoned with. And then Quintel is four again, a lock for the best actor uh, nominee. It's his film. There's so many actors in this movie, but not once is there anyone more powerful than his performance on screen. This is a stunning, stunning piece of work. We've talked about four movies so far in this podcast, all great in their own right, but I think 12 Years a Slave really is the one that stuck with me the most, and it's going to be hard to top this year. And then the other one, which I mentioned, which I'm glad that I got you interested in actually seeing you it, did. I is think. Uh, The Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, Him and Her. So 
now that you've actually seen it, how was it? I mean, first of all, I, I do want to say thank you. You brought this movie to my attention, or else I wouldn't have seen it, Tiff. And just the makeup of the movie automatically got me interested in it. And I guess for those who don't know, it's essentially this this three-hour movie that looks at something that happens between a guy and a girl and pretty much their different ways of dealing with it. So the first 90 minutes is from the guy's perspective. The last 90 minutes is from the female's perspective. And I think it's picked up by the Weinsteins. I think they're going to market as two separate movies, I, I believe. But the movie is fascinating because, I mean, I, they've also said that you can switch watching her before him. I watched Tim, and I can't think of it watching her first. And it's weird, the director of Ned Benson said that whatever one you watch is typically the one that you prefer. And in this case, it was true. But just to make it, the movie is three hours long, but it really is something wholly original. It started Jessica Chastain and McAvoy. And it, it really is a movie that took me by surprise. I had no idea going in. This is, I think Ned Benson is one of his, his first feature. He's been working on this movie for almost 10 years when he first met Jessica Chastain. And it was really a moving piece of work. And one of my biggest surprises to the film festival. Okay. How is Bill Hader in it? Is he the typical comic relief, or does he dial it down and actually play, like, a serious role? If there is comic relief in the movie, it is from him and his interactions with McAvoy. But he's great. I mean, I think some people say that he kind of does stick out a little bit, but I enjoyed the humor that he brought, and I really did like his performance. I've always loved Bill Hader for, like, years on SNL and showing up in all these different comedies. Superbad, I was okay with. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but mm. him and Seth Rogen were obviously the best parts of the entire movie, and I keep waiting for him to finally break out and be a comedy superstar on the level of, like, a Will Ferrer or a Jim Carrey or a Bill Murray or something like that. I mean, this guy deserves to be in the pantheon of great comic superstars and in the meantime he's just killing it in all these little tiny supporting roles oh yeah you know he's fantastic he's one of the many highlights of the film i really enjoy his performances interactions with mcavoy he does bring some comedic points to a movie that is a very heavy movie i mean for those who don't know the plot it's essentially about a couple who they're six months in from losing their child and chastain's character is she has a different way of dealing things. She literally just wants to, to start fresh. To She just doesn't want to see her husband. She doesn't want to be married. She just wants to kind of get away. And that's why it's called Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. She pretty much falls off the map. So the first half is McAvoy trying to coping with this, trying to find out what she's doing for 90 minutes. And then you see the reverse. You know, what is she doing for that 90 minutes? And it really is this fascinating portrait of coping and, and showing that we all cope differently. And I think you're going to love it. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. And I hope you find it as equally rewarding as I did. And just one last question before we move on. I have to ask, do they actually play the Beatles' Eleanor Rigby song in the movie? They do. And how many times do they do it? Is it just the once, or do they just keep hammering it in? Yeah, I believe it's played very faintly in the distance. It's not like a centerpiece of the movie or anything like that. Okay, moving on. You gave me a list of the other movies that you saw here. Just talk about the ones that grabbed your interest. The big one for me is one that I think you go in having huge reservations. I mean, I think every time, and that's, that's unforgiven, any time one of your favorite movies gets remade, you must go in with these sort of reservations. Is it going to live up to the hype? Why are they remaking this? I mean, I felt the same when The Good, The Bad, and The Weird comes out in comparison to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But Unforgiven stars Ken Watanabe in the Clint Eastwood role. And it really is, I mean, 
the movies we've talked about on this on the show, I mean, I, I highly recommend, and Unforgiven is one of them. I mean, it starts off slow, much like Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, and it is more brutal in many ways than Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, and it comes to this massive conclusion. There is slight differences, but again, you know the story. Nothing really changes, but it's a beautiful-looking film. But again, in many ways, it's even more brutal than Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which is surprising, both in terms of physical brutality and emotional brutality. So one of the big surprises for me, again, the film Is there enough of a difference in there to give it its own unique identity so that you're not constantly doing a mental checklist as you're watching the movie of saying to yourself, okay, they got this right, they got this wrong, they got this right, that's not even in there? I would say no, to be honest. I mean, I think you know what's going to happen. There's maybe one surprise at the end, but it's not necessarily scene for scene, but all the key elements, all the key plot structures and the performances, they're all there. So in that case, you're completely right. It's not, it can't maybe look at it as a wholly separate film because it does take directly from Unforgiven in terms of characters, in terms of um, climax, plot points, uh, dialogue in, in many ways too. So Anything else? I thought this was a great movie, uh, Doubt of China. Uh, it's a very violent movie. We looked at four episodes of just really violent nature, and it was the director's attempt to bring out this... Uh, there's been a lot of violence in t- mainstream Chinese culture, and this is his way of bringing it to the forefront, I guess, kind of say. And it's a very shockingly violent movie, but one that you know it got very well-received at Cannes. It opened the limited release last week, and I think it opens in Toronto this week, and it's one that uh, if you got the stomach for it, it is another great movie. Slow-moving, very contemplative in many ways, but one you should definitely check out. Another one would be The Past. And that, yeah, The Past, that was the one I figured you'd have something to say about it, because you mentioned one of the reviewers who was at Cannes saw this and gave the movie a perfect 100 out of 100. Yeah, and it's from and uh, the same guy that did the Iranian film A Separation. And there's a lot of similarities here, too, in terms of the plot structures. It is a family drama, but again, its base is in its screenplay. And again, I think much like Prisoners, there's a lot of twists and turns, and maybe you get too much, but the performances are so good. And it is a a very, it's a great companion piece to a separation in many ways. And I know some people, has been received moderately in comparison to a separation which i mean was critically acclaimed across the board winning the foreign oscar but again this is a movie that's a great follow-up and a great companion piece i feel like i'm praising every movie i saw it yet but was not necessarily the case but i was fortunate this year i saw a lot of great movies other ones that i guess i would recommend stray dogs from tay mingling who also did what time is it there this is follow-up from from face it's a very contemplative movie a very almost a lot of walkouts during this movie. It's a movie that's not necessarily for everyone. It ends on pretty much like a 25-minute shot of the same thing, and then the movie just kind of cuts to an end. So it's not for everyone. But from an artistic standpoint, he's always been one of my favorite filmmakers. So it was one that was definitely on my schedule to watch. Watermark, Jennifer Bidgewell's follow-up to Manufactured Landscapes. It opens in Toronto very shortly. Another one to look out for. And those were the highlights, I think, for me. Again, my favorite being 12 Years a Slave. Toronto agreed, won the Audience Film Festival Award. So when it opens a limited release, when it goes wide, I mean, check it out. Because it's my favorite movie of the year and my pick for Best Picture. So it was a successful tip overall. Okay then, why don't we actually talk about just the movies that weren't at TIFF but are going to come out in the next few months. This is sort of our fall-winter preview of things that we're looking forward to. I mean, there's a ton of stuff coming out almost every week 
that we're excited for in one way or another. But there's four in particular that I really want to talk about, and just going uh, chronologically. The first one coming up at the end of the month, which I'm surprised that we're two weeks away from its release, but we've heard practically nothing about it, despite its impressive pedigree, both in front of and behind the camera, and that's uh, The Counselor. We've got literally an all-star cast, as we've got Michael Fassbender, Penelope Cruz, Javier Bardem, Cameron Diaz, and Brad Pitt in the cast, and those are just the above-the-title talent. In the supporting cast, I think we've got uh, Rosie Perez, as well as Dean Norris, a.k.a. ASAC Hank Schrader from Breaking Bad in the cast. And then, if that's not enough to get you interested, then you have Ridley Scott directing a Cormac McCarthy script. Let me just repeat that again. <laughs> Cormac McCarthy writing an original script. How are people not more excited about this? Yeah, and it's true. It is kind of sneaking up on us. You're right. It's two weeks away. I'm very cautious about this. I heard that the critics have seen it. They're just under embargo. So that's probably it. But still, the hype machine on this should be going overboard by now. Yeah, like Pitt, Fassbender, Bardem, like it's Penelope Cruz, Ridley Scott. I mean, I haven't heard anything about it. So for me, that's that's almost like a warning in certain ways. Even even like rumblings here or there, I haven't heard anything about it. But it's Cormac McCarthy. I mean, right? Like this is a first screenplay. This is something. You know, this is a, a legend from from fiction coming to the big screen. And the cast itself. You're right. But you're right. We haven't heard anything. So is this a warning? Should we be cautiously optimistic or cautiously pessimistic? I'm not sure. But I mean, I'm definitely going to be the opening day, as I know you are as well. But it is very strange. We haven't heard anything about it in terms of buzz, either for or against it. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, I, we can't explain this one, folks, but hopefully it's for the better and not for the worse. Moving on, in November, we got a lot of huge moves there, most notably the Hunger Games sequel, Catching Fire, and uh, Ender's Game as well as uh, Frozen, the latest Disney animated movie. But mm-hmm. the one that we could potentially see in November, but it's starting to look very less likely, is Wolf of Wall Street, which the latest from Scorsese, as soon as everybody saw the Kanye West-infused trailer for that, it shot up on everybody's must-see list. But, of course, I'm excited about it. It could potentially be my number one. But last I heard, it might be bumped to Christmas because Scorsese and Schoonmaker are frantically trying to get it down from a three-hour runtime to two hours to meet a uh, contractual obligation, which the fact that Scorsese even has a contractual runtime of two hours is just completely absurd. But if it means getting the film out before the end of the year, then that's fine by me. Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing these different rumblings of it being delayed completely, which is frustrating. We've already lost Boxcatcher to 2014. To not to have this come out this year, I mean, you're losing one of your heavyweights, one of your possible contenders. I don't think they are going to lose it. It's just going to be pushed back. Okay, but... And it's probably going to be out at Christmas. So if anything's going to get bumped, it's going to be that latest Jack Ryan movie. Mm -hmm. Right. So that one's sort of an asterisk there of... Yes, it is probably going to be out, just not as soon as we'd like for it to be. As long as it comes out in 2013. But you're yeah. right, who puts contractual obligations on a Scorsese movie to Scorsese? Like, I'm yes, sorry. exactly. That's <laughs> no, just completely stupid. It makes no sense to me. Moving on to December, we have a ton of big release stuff, one of which I'll let you cover. But the two that I'm excited for the most, one is the latest from the Coen brothers, Inside Lewin Davis, which... 
I don't really have to say much about it. I mean, it's the latest from the Coen brothers. But the one thing that I would like to add, the thing that made me perk up in the trailer that made me really happy was to actually see F. Murray Abraham in the trailers. And I'm just glad to see him in a Coen Brothers movie because for a while there, particularly during the late 90s to the early zeros, it was just really embarrassing just to see him show up in crap like Star Trek Insurrection, 13 Ghosts, and Finding Forrester. I mean, this is Salieri, for God's sake. This is a man who won an Oscar for this. My plan was so simple that it terrified me. First, I must get the death mass, and then I... I must achieve his death. What? His funeral. Imagine it. The cathedral. All Vienna sitting there. His coffin. Mozart's little coffin in the middle. And then... In that silence. Music. A divine music bursts out over them all. A great mass of death. Requiem mass for Wolfgang Mozart. Composed by his devoted friend, Antonio Salieri. Oh, what sublimity, what depth, what passion in the music. Salieri has been touched by God at last. And God forced to listen. Powerless to lose, powerless to stop. I, for once, in the end, laughing at him. was the actual killing. How does one do that? Hmm? How does one kill a man? Uh, it's one thing to dream about it. It's very different when, when you... when you have to do it with your own hands. But between his guest-starring roles on The Good Wife, Louie, and now Homeland, he's finally getting good work again. So it's kind of like seeing Ben Kingsley in Shutter Island or Hugo. You're just so glad to see that he can actually be in good stuff again. Oh, yeah. And it says with Davis. I've listened to that song, The Fair Do Well, by the Mumford & Sons, so many times. The trailer, I love... Yeah, the latest trailer. I've been watching that one over and over again with John Goodman being like, 12 notes to a scale, not three cards on an ukulele. <laughs> it's a great great trailer, and you're right. I mean, fans of, of, of cinema. Oh, yeah, and that reminds me. Yeah, that's John Goodman back again with the Coen brothers. He yeah. hasn't been with them since, like, the Big Lebowski. Exactly. And, I mean, look at his. No, wait, no. Uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. Yeah, it's been a good 10 years, but I can understand John Goodman taking a break from yeah. them, but I'm just glad that one of the shining stars of their repertoire is finally back. Oh, exactly. And a good and a good thing to note, and I talked to Jason about it, the last two Best Picture winners featured John Goodman, so that this is good news for Inside Blue and Davis. It's also good news for Monuments Man, one of my most anticipated movies after this new trailer that came out the other day. So John Goodman's kind of a lucky charm right now. The other movie in December that 
I haven't been hearing too much about, but I'm sort of looking for, uh, forward to, is this one called Saving Mr. Banks. Unlike The Counselor, this, on the other hand, I get why people might not be too excited about it. First off, the trailer's not that great. I mean, it gets the story and the conflict across, but it has a bit of a self-congratulatory vibe to it and feels a bit middle of the road. Not the greatest trailer out there, and like I said, it gets the story across, but if you know the story behind the making of Mary Poppins, which is basically unstoppable force, Walt Disney, meeting immovable object, P.L. Travers, who is a cast-iron bitch who, ironically enough, hated children, you know how much of an ordeal it was for the film to get made. If you really want to know how it went down, I highly recommend that you watch The Boys, the Sherman Brothers story, which I talked about a bit back in my episode with Darcy Keith. It was actually the first film I saw when I moved to Toronto back in 09. Between it and Waking Sleeping Beauty, it really rekindled my love for Disney and the actual artistry that goes into their films. But getting back to the film, while I'm sure there is going to be some whitewashing of the story, I'm just hoping that it's not too bad. This could be Tom Hanks's year. I mean, he could be uh, talking to Jason. It could be double dipping. We're looking at maybe potential Oscars for Captain Phillips, which I saw last night and sort of gave me seasickness, though I liked the movie. And another great supporting role here. You're right. I think that trailer doesn't do the film any good for sure, but there's definitely a lot of lot to love here. I don't know too much about the backstory behind it, but it's something that it's on my must see list, but somewhere in the middle. And you gotta think, just based on the pedigree behind it with Tom Hanks, Emma Thompson, it's gonna be in that Oscar range. You just hopefully it's not too big. Like I said, there is probably gonna be some whitewashing of it. I'm just yeah. hoping that it's not too bad because it is a genuinely is. fascinating story. It is fascinating. Just the trailer itself kind of brings that issue to, to its head, but I'm looking forward to it. Is it one of my highlights? Not necessarily, but, I mean, it could go either way. Based on, on the, the couple trailers that have come out, it could be an Oscar contender. It could be another, you know, dud, but we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Okay. And uh, why don't we just talk about the big December release, the one that, obviously, you're chomping at the bit for. Well, of course. Of course. I mean, for me, 2013 was about two things. It was about 12 Years a Slave, which I've seen and loved, and it's also about The Hobbit. Again, our second, The Dissolution of Smog. The second film in this Hobbit trilogy, I expect the minor flaws in the first one to be corrected. This, this trilogy now is, is already doubled in terms of cost of what Lord of the Rings was. I loved the first film. This is going to be new characters, new setup. We're going to finally see Smog the Dragon. For Lord of the Rings, not a Hobbit, not this is... How can this not be my most anticipated movie of the year? I don't go with any reservations. I was fulfilled with The Hobbit, and I expect to be so with um, The Dissolution of Smoke. So, all right, Chris, thanks for coming on. No, thank you, as always. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. All right, then. Peace. All right, take care. So show us the birds.